We are in week four of this teaching series through the book of Daniel called Stand. And the whole idea is watching this godly man named Daniel learn and show us what it means to stand and take a stand as a God chaser in a world that's not really all about chasing God. And so we've seen him go through a lot of different things. A lot of historical water has gone under the bridge during the course of this book. In fact, by the time we get to the end of the chapter today, we will have gone through seven decades of human history watching the life of Daniel. It's pretty incredible. And the cool thing about him is that through that whole time, Daniel was continually faithful to God, and so there's a lot to be learned there. Uh, if you remember, uh, a lot of the book is seen through the eyes or through the lens or maybe through the filter of various kings of Babylon, and so I want to kind of remind you of some of those. The one we've seen most of all, all the way for the first four chapters, was King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was coming into power as Daniel was a young man. Daniel was about 15 years old when Nebuchadnezzar was kind of coming into power, uh, but by the time we get to chapter 5... Daniel, who was at one point 15, is now in his early 80s, and that's where we are today. Daniel is an old man now, and two other kings have come in the throne, into the throne of Babylon since chapter 4. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nabonidus, was king first, and we'll talk about him in just a second. And then actually in chapter 5, we're going to read a little bit about this king named Belshazzar. Belshazzar. These are all great names if you're like uh, thinking of having children and want to name your children something awesome. You can cross all three of these off the list. Um, when we began, Babylon was at the height of its power. But we're going to see today, actually, the fall of Babylon. Pretty, yeah, all right. Big, big Babylon rivalry going on in here. It's easy just to uh, gloss over this portion of the Bible and, and look at the history part and be like, you know, why does the history really even matter? Why do we keep on getting into this stuff? But I believe that it really does matter to look at the history because uh, what we see is that the same God that Daniel stood for back in uh, those days is the exact same God that we stand for today. And the same problems that Daniel was facing, uh, the, the political problem, the evil, the brokenness, the pain that was so pervasive in Daniel's day is the same junk that we deal with Today, and hopefully you've seen that through the next, uh, through the last few weeks, the world that we wake up to each day can be daunting, can't it? I mean, whether it's the job that you don't like, or maybe just I don't want to turn on the news because I'm scared to see what's happened, or just the task that you're faced with each day. Maybe it's not that it's a bad task, but just like, oh man, I just don't know how this is how this is going to end. Uh, and you know. When I look at the world around me, I, I sometimes I don't want to be negative about it because I'm a pretty optimistic guy, actually. But I look around, I'm like, man, this is, a, this is a sad and downright depressing place sometimes on the worst days, right? Yet when I read the stories of Daniel and other people from history who are God chasers, it brings me hope. It brings me hope, and, and this is why. If I had to think of a theme for the whole book of Daniel and boil it down into just a couple of words, it would probably be this phrase. God is in control. God is in control. If you follow the book of Daniel, what you see is Daniel faces insurmountable odds, things that he just couldn't do on his own, yet he still trusted in God because he understands something, that God is in control. And when we seek God, he provides for us. And when we seek God, he delivers us. And so that's the message I think we get out of Daniel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get into chapter 5 today, which to me is a pretty daunting chapter. You'll see why in just a second if you haven't already read it. When I get into this lesson today, I'm really reminded of a passage from the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Now, this is kind of a landing verse for us today, so it'd be a great one to memorize if, you, if you're looking for verses to memorize. It says this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. In, in, in short, this sentence, this passage says that God 
is in control. When we seek God, he takes care of us. So today we're going to approach Daniel chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it up, or scroll down on your device. Daniel chapter 5, hopefully you're getting the hang of looking at that thing. I'm hoping that you're reading uh, in Daniel throughout the week. Um, and so go ahead and flip over there to Daniel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we've got free ones that we give away every week. They're kind of scattered underneath the seats here. We'll also have it on the screen behind me. Um, but Daniel is near the Old Testament of the Bible, and this story happens several hundred of years before Jesus is born. But the cool thing is how much Daniel's story ends up pointing us to Jesus, which we're going to see in a couple weeks as we wrap up the book. As you turn there, I want to give you a quick little uh, piece of history, okay? So when we get into Daniel chapter 5, I'm reminded of something really important. I know a lot of us come from a background where maybe, like, reading the Bible and, and making it like a cornerstone of our life is kind of weird and scary because we look at the Bible and we're like, I don't know if I can believe in this. It's like a bunch of fairy tales and hocus pocus, and I'm not sure. Anybody ever, you know how to raise your hand, but maybe you've, you've felt that way or you've got a family member or a friend who feels that way. One of the greatest ways for me to find faith in all of that confusion is to look at the places in the Bible that overlap with other times in world history, where you can overline the events and say, man, this lines up. This is something that the Bible says happens. This is also something the world's history says happens. Uh, there was a time period, uh, I don't know how long it was, my guess is probably centuries, when historians had a list of all the Babylonian kings. It was pretty easy to do, major, major empire, easy to figure out who was in charge. There was a problem, though. When you get to Daniel chapter 5, there's this king listed named Belshazzar. He's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And Belshazzar was never in the list of the kings. Now, if you're someone who's a skeptic of the Bible, that would be a problem, right? And rightfully so. People have said, looked at that passage, Daniel chapter 5, and said, you know what? This doesn't line up with history. I don't know that the Bible can be completely reliable because of this. One thing I love about the Bible is that constantly we are finding things to affirm it. In Daniel chapter 5, we meet this guy, Belshazzar, and until 1956, it was a mystery. Why, why was this guy listed in the Bible? Was he really a king? But in 1956, something was discovered uh, that I think you should know about. It's pretty cool for you if you have some doubts about the Bible or something you want to share with your friends. Uh, we discovered this. I didn't discover it. I wasn't there. Check out this image. Um, this is the Nabonidus Chronicle. Nabonidus Chronicle. It's an inscription, and it fills in a little bit of mystery history that never was you know, very well known before. And there's a lot of things listed in this. There's actually several tablets that were found. But one of the things that's listed in this is this story. It says that the king of Babylon, Nabonidus, had decided to join his troops in a distant battle. But before he left, he took his son, Belshazzar, and placed him on the throne in his absence, which made him king while his father was away fighting the war. Long story short, it turns out that Daniel chapter 5 had it right all along. And it's really cool, not until 1956 could we like really see that in history. Archaeology has long been the friend of biblical scholarship. And uh, here's an interesting fact for those of you who are seeking and just trying to find some faith. There have been over 25,000 archaeological discoveries that have served to prove the authenticity of the Bible. And there have been zero that have significantly damaged it at all. If that's something that you're interested, I want to let you know. We just posted a blog on the website. I think it went live this morning. Uh, Jointheventure.com. Go to our resources link in the, the menu. And there's a new blog, and it sends you to several links of lots of other archaeological discoveries that show the Bible's reliable. Okay, so that's the cool little history lesson for those of you who care, who don't and are ready for story time. Let's come back in. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 5 and keep moving. Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse uh, 1, I just need to give you this little piece. Remember it said that Belshazzar had been placed in the throne while his father was off fighting? Well, the Babylonians were very, very strong. And the Persians and the Medes were kind of coming in on different sides, and they were wanting to take, and, take over Babylon, and they were fighting hard. So that's why the king had to go off and fight. 
But while his son Belshazzar was on the throne, he had to kind of make a statement to his nobles and his rulers and say, hey, guys, guys, we're good. Everything's fine. So he throws a party. And that's where we pick up at Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. So Belshazzar throws this huge party, and a lot of crazy stuff is about to go down. You need to understand that because it's coming up. But basically what's happening is Belshazzar is in the midst of this political turmoil, and he's trying to make a statement. He wants to be remembered, and like a lot of people do as a status symbol, he throws a huge party. He invites thousands of nobles, all their wives, all their concubines, and he breaks out the best wine, and they just get smashed. Okay, that's what's happening in this story. Verse 2 picks up. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold tablets that had been taken from the temple of Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and their concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. If you don't know much about God, you need to understand that last sentence would be a problem for him. He doesn't like it when people praise other things and call them God. What do you do when you're feeling invincible? What do you do when you're the king of Babylon and you want to let everybody know that you're in charge? Eh, what Belshadar does is he gets really drunk with thousands of his friends, which by itself is detestable. But Belshazzar makes things worse. I don't know if you caught this on, on the passing, but I want to kind of fill you in on what just went down there. When he decides to cross the line and show off for his friends and the nobles by calling for these gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the Jews. Now, don't be confused here. It's said in the passage that Nebuchadnezzar was his father. Did you catch that? I just got done telling you he was his grandfather. That's not a problem because actually in this ancient society, and we do it here today, it'd be okay to call any of your patriarchs your father. We might say, you know, George Washington's the father of our nation. That's, we all understand what we mean. He ain't my daddy, but we understand he, what I'm saying, right? So he's his grandfather, and he calls for these goblets. Back in chapter 1, if you were here, if you heard, listened to the podcast, or if you read it, you'll see back in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar had gone into the kingdom of the Jews. He'd ransacked their main city, Jerusalem. He'd gone to their temple, and he'd taken away these goblets. They had been set aside and dedicated to God, gold and silver goblets. He'd taken them away and he'd put them uh, in, in the temple of their God. But since then, Nebuchadnezzar had learned a lot about the God of the Jews. And the main thing he learned is that you don't mess with him. If you remember back to the last few weeks, every time Nebuchadnezzar tried to mess around with God, something crazy showed up to prove to him that God was mighty, that he was sovereign, and that Nebuchadnezzar needed to take a step back. Now here's the thing. For three generations, Nebuchadnezzar had known that. And he had taught his son and his grandson, listen, we don't mess with the God of the Jews. These sacred idols that has been set apart had never been touched. But Belshazzar, in a moment of revelry, decides, bring in the goblets. Now, now this is thousands of goblets, incalculably valuable, gold and silver. Uh, I don't know about you, when we have parties at my house, we use those red solo cups, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's a song about it and everything. Um, but, like... This guy's bringing out the goat, which not only, so not only is like this big religious taboo thing, like he's just a big pretentious jerk. Like, hey, look at my gold goblets, guys. I got all the gold goblets you want. Like, I just don't like Belshazzar. Then finally, to add shame to his foolishness, it says that as they were drinking from the goblets, they started praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood. 
Now, do you remember what we learned in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? It's the first verse I shared. I remind you, it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. The thing is, the converse of that is true also. We've already seen it in this book. Those who turn their back on God might just lose everything. God works for good for those who serve him and who love and live according to his purpose. But when we turn our backs on God, he's not necessarily going to get our back. Belshazzar should have known better. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Suddenly, this is where it gets weird, okay? So hang on. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. This is a weird moment in the Bible. We got to admit, okay? But we've already seen some crazy things, and God has already shown that, like, that I can do all kinds of things. I'm picturing, like, uh, what was it Thing from the Adams family? Like, I'm picturing this, Jew, and he's writing on the wall. If you see that, what do you do? I mean, you're freaking out. Like, what's going on? And so that's exactly what Belshazzar does. Uh, he's freaking out. But, but in this, this kind of drunken stupor that he's in, he suddenly has this sobering moment, snaps out of it. You ever have one of those sobering moments? It's that moment when you're on a long trip. Maybe you did it at Thanksgiving, and you're driving late at night, and you're starting to doze a little bit. You're like, I'm good. I just kind of, I just gonna blink, you know. And the next thing you're like, Brrr. you hear that rumble strip, and you're running over. It wakes you right out, right? Boom! You have a sobering moment. There's a, one of my favorite comedians is a guy named Nate Bargatze, and he tells a story about one night he was uh, he was out doing a gig at a comedy show, and uh, he got back to his hotel room, and he was really really sleepy. He'd also had a little bit of drink, and he was just like, I just I'm not in my right mind, and and, he, and he's and, he, and he's thinking, you know, I want to sleep in in the morning. You know those do not disturb signs that you hang outside the hotel door? It's an amazing little piece of paper. He's like, I'm hanging that on my door. It's a great idea. So he, he does what he does before bed. He gets undressed, which for him is completely undressed. And then he goes to hang the sign on the door, and he walks out in the hallway. And then and he shuts the door. Those things lock automatically, by the way. He said... When he heard the click of that door, it was the single most sobering noise he'd ever heard in his life. He's like, oh my goodness. And then he tells a funny story about how the maid had to get him back into his room. Terrible situation. These, these moments that we have in our life, though, that snap us out of it, right? They wake us up. And we realize things are way worse than I thought they were, right? This is exactly what Belshazzar ha- experiences. As he sees his hand writing on the wall, this disembodied hand pops out of nowhere and begins writing this message on the wall. Now, what it's writing is very specific, but he doesn't know what it means. Now, what do you do when something crazy happens and you can't explain it? Well, you begin to seek answers, right? Well, apparently, uh, Belshazzar's drunken buddies are no help. So they begin doing what we've seen several chapters by now. You call in the wise man and the sorcerers and the enchanters, and you're like, the diviners, and figure this out for me. So they all, they all pour in, and they're all trying to look at the writing on the wall. They're like, I don't know why this is there. I don't know what it means. And they leave, and then, surprise, after their no help, guess who they call? Daniel. They call Daniel. They, they don't know who else to call. The queen actually steps into the room. I wonder where she had been the whole time or if she had seen the whole thing. The queen is older. We, don't, we, we assume it must have been his, uh, either, either his wife would have been the queen or probably his mother. And he comes in and he goes, Belshazzar, son, do you remember there used to be a man that would talk to your granddaddy, Nebuchadnezzar? And whenever he couldn't figure something out, he would call him. And the guy's name was Daniel. And he's still in town. Let's call him. 
So Daniel comes in. That's where we're going to pick up our story. I've summarized a lot of it. We get to verse 17. They bring in Daniel. Now, the first thing that happens is the king starts buttering him up. He's like, oh, Daniel, if you can interpret this writing for me, I'll give you gold, and I'll make you rich beyond your wildest dreams, and I'll give you these nice clothes. And Daniel, I love what he says in verse 17. He answers the king, you can keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing on the wall and tell the king what it means. Now, remember, it's pretty interesting, and I love, I love reminding ourselves that these are real people with real situations in real time. Remember, Daniel is in his early 80s now. He's an old man. Have you ever talked to somebody in their 80s? Like, they say whatever they want to say. Like, it's a, it don't matter who you are or what you want. And so, like, I, this, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was with my grandmother, and she's, she's 86 years old. And I'm sitting with her on the couch, and uh, you know how you sit with your 86-year-old grandma? You sit about, a, like, a hair apart, and she's holding your hand, and, like, cutting off the circulation to your arm. Like, so that's what we're doing. And we're talking, and she's 86 years old. Remember, 86-year-olds say whatever they want. So she leans in, and she whispers, except not very quiet at all. She goes, I'm going to have to go to the restroom. <laughs> now, most adults just kind of get up and excuse themselves. But when you're 86, you're like, you know what? I just thought you needed to know. I just figured, I'm gone. Daniel comes in. He's in his 80s. He don't care. He's going to say exactly what's mine. So first of all, he tells him, like, look, you can keep your rewards. I don't care. But I'm going to do this thing because this is what I do. And he goes on in verse 18. And he begins to remind the king, Belshazzar, of all the power that God had shown to them through his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Reminding him, do you remember your granddaddy? Remember that season when he, you probably heard about where he lost his mind and was out wandering in a field eating grass like an ox? Do you remember that? Do you remember how God took away all his power because of his arrogance? Do you remember that? Belshazzar's like, yeah, yeah, I do. He's like, look, man. The only way to be honored and, and to live a, a good life is to honor God. And then when your grandfather began to honor God, God restored his sanity and gave him everything back. And then in verse 22, this is what he says to Belshazzar. Daniel says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, you've not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. And then he disciplines him for a few minutes, and then you get to verse 25. He says, fine, Th this is what the inscription on the wall says. It says, many, many tekel parson which we don't know what that means. I don't know how he knew what it meant. But he goes, this is what it means. Many. God has numbered your days of your reign, and he's brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and have been found wanting. Parson. Your kingdom is divided, and it will be given to the Medes and the Persians. See, just hours before, Belshazzar was throwing a party. Wearing his nice robe, showing off his new sandals, everything, right? Bringing out the gold goblets. And now he's got this well-respected prophet coming in and saying, listen, you've gone too far. You knew better, and you went too far, and God's going to take it all away. Some of Daniel's prophecies in his book take years to come true. Some of them take generations, hundreds of years. And we're going to talk about some of those in a couple of weeks because prophecies are, let's just be honest, they're confusing what do I listen to? What's symbolic? What's literal? I don't know. We're going to talk about some of those, not next week, but the week after as we wrap up the series. Um, because a lot of the stuff that Daniel talks about is actually prophecies about Jesus, which we're at Christmas time, and so that's pretty neat. But this particular prophecy doesn't take long at all to be fulfilled. Actually, before the night is over, it's fulfilled. Let, let's look at verse 30. It says, that very night, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was slain. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Did you notice that? Darius, he was a Mede. That's like his people group. Not Darius the Babylonian. 
Darius the Mede. This is the night that Babylon falls. Uh, history uh, tells us that that time, the, the, uh, the armies were surrounding Babylon. They had engineered a way to block, uh, I believe it was the Euphrates River, and, and block it up in such a way so that they could cross. And they came in and they took Babylon without a fight. All while Belshazzar is throwing a party in the, in the castle and having a good time with his friends. Um, so that's the story. I got, I got to take a second. I got to step aside here because I, and I need to admit something. Um, as a, a preacher, uh, I approach some passages, and I'm pretty pumped about them. Like, Yay, this will be easy to talk about. That's great. But as I've been seeing chapter 5 roll up in this series, I have not been looking forward to this chapter. Because everything I just read is Daniel chapter 5. Okay, that was it. There's not like a happy ending like the other chapters is all like, yay, and then Nebuchadnezzar turned his heart back to God and his sanity was restored. And, you know, we're all excited about that. But you get to this end of this chapter and I'm just left with this, this thought. And as a teacher, as a pastor, I want to be true to what's actually there. And I'm like, what do, we, what do we teach there? Like, what's the lesson? Don't show off God's golden goblets. Is that the lesson? Like, I'm not sure exactly. And, and you, could, you could probably find a couple of different things that could be taught there. But as I've thought about it, I've realized something. And it's the reason why we have to approach texts like this. This is what I've realized. That's just life. Like, like sometimes, you know, it all goes great and sometimes it doesn't, right? And, and sometimes people change their heart and turn back to God and sometimes people just decide they're going to do what they're going to do and there's nothing anybody can say to change their mind. And unfortunately, Belshazzar was one of those guys. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what the lesson was. So I called my brother, who's also a pastor, and I'm just talking to him about different things. And, and I got an answer that I want to share with you today. And it came from an unlikely likely place. It came from my eight-year-old niece. Her name's Ariel. And uh, yes, like the little mermaid. And, and, she, uh, and she was just talking to her dad. And he, she had no idea she was uh, going to teach all of us today. But, but she's eight years old, and... Uh, She's my brother's daughter. A while ago, she was reading um, The Little House on the Prairie books. Anybody read those books? Maybe you remember the TV show? There was a book series first. And, um, and, and it's a really good book series. And, and she's reading it. And they get to this one part uh, where they're fording this one river. And their family dog, Jack, gets washed away. And he's presumed dead. And it's a really sad thing because like, Jack is like a, an important character in the book. If you have a, a pet dog, you're like, it's part of the family. Well, my niece, they also have dogs, and man, she, she was, I guess she was talking to her brother, and she was just like, man, it bothered her. It really bothered her that Jack is gone now. And he's like, are you going to be okay? She's like, it's just really sad. It's just really sad. Well, she keeps reading. Well, let, let me stop there. She, it's, it's hard to move on when something's sad, when something's bad. And I wonder if you've ever hit those walls. You know, when you hit that moment, you don't know what's next. You don't know what's the outcome going to be. It might be a bad relationship that you're in right now. It might be this huge debt that you're facing. It might be this uncertainty about a job. It might be a loss that you've had. Like, this is story in Daniel chapter 5 is one of those stories. Like, what do you do here? I don't know where this is going. Well, as, as my niece kept reading the book, uh, something awesome happened. If you have read the books, you know. Jack comes home, right? He makes his way back home, and it's awesome, uh, which makes the story a lot better, and it makes my niece happy. But... That's not the reason that I told you the story, and that's not the lesson, because sometimes Jack doesn't come home, right? The reason I tell you the story is because of this. That was a while ago. She's decided to reread the books, and she gets to the story about Jack and the river again, and my brother's like, you okay? You sad about Jack this time? She goes, yeah. Yeah, it is sad, but you know what? It's, it's, it's okay. You know why? He's like, why? She says, because I know the end of the story. Suddenly, when you know how things are going to turn out, when you know 
the end of the story. You can find hope even in what seems like a bad situation. God is in control. God is in control. That's what we've learned through the entire book of Daniel, that God is in control. And one of the reasons that Daniel is able to continue to stand as a God chaser in a world that's not about chasing God was because he knew that God had his back no matter what. And sometimes it gets crazy. And sometimes things go haywire. And sometimes the, the king drops his guard and gets his nobles drunk and the Medes break in and take over the kingdom. Right? Sometimes that happens. But it doesn't change the fact that God is in control. He's ruler. He's supreme. And his kingdom, by the way, Daniel prophesied this, his kingdom reigns above all other kingdoms and will not fail. Christmas is almost here, and the book of Daniel, it does teach a lot, of, a lot of things, but one thing that Daniel as a prophet does is he predicts the coming of Jesus. He and Isaiah and some other guys, they were some of the people who had this prophetic vision four to 500 years before Jesus ever came into the earth, very specific predictions about who Jesus would be and what he would mean to the world. And now we live in that time. We live in that time where God came near. God with us, God putting on flesh, taking the name Jesus, and sharing his life with us so that we too can have life. We learned that God is in control. In Romans chapter 8, we learned that God causes everything to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who serve God. Listen, if you're living under the illusion that you are in control of your life right now, I, I, just, I just want you to have a sobering thought. You're not. I'm not. And so often we reach this thing that I've been calling the end of me from a book that I quoted a few weeks ago. But the end of me. What happens when I get to the end of my own abilities, my own resources, my own knowledge, my own experience? What happens when I get to the end of that? What happens when this awesome job quits paying? What happens when this relationship that's going great turns south or one of us gets really sick? What happens when the thing that we look to for hope is no longer something we can find hope in? What happens when I reach the end of me? We have to remember, God is in control. And he works together for good for those who love and serve according to his purpose. This week, let's make living for God, being a God chaser, taking a stand, let's make it a priority. Start right here, right where you are. And I always say this, just take one step at a time. If you've ever learned how to do something that you've never done before, you don't start by having a PhD in it, do you? No, you start with one step. Take a class, talk to an expert, read a book, or if you're me, you just take it apart and see what happens. <laughs> but take a step. Maybe for you, your step might be you came today and, and you're not really all about God and church and religion and it just seems a little bit hokey pokey to you. That's fine. Here's all I want to ask you to think about. Take one step. And maybe that one step for you is just come back. Come back one more week, build some community, meet some of these awesome people in here, learn their names have a laugh with them, see what's going on in their life, and see how God has shown up for them. Maybe may for you, it might be making a commitment for Jesus. Like, you've been doing church for a little while, but you've never, like, outright said, I want to become a Christian. In the Bible, it says when we want to become a Christian, we've got to say it with our mouth. We've got to confess it. I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. It also says that when we make that decision, we choose to be baptized. That in baptism, we receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. Maybe that's a step you need to take. You've been taking the baby steps all along. You're like, I need to take the big step. Maybe for you, you've already done this thing. 
But the step for you in seeing that God is in control is to say, you know, what is an area of my life that I'm trying to hold on to? What are the goblets that I'm keeping tucked away because I want them to make me feel like I'm in control? And maybe step one by one, by one hand those over to God and say, God, I trust you to work for good for me because you are in control. If you'd like to make any of those decisions today, I just encourage you to speak to somebody. You can come talk to me. We're a small church. I'll be available right after church. Some people that were in the band, just talk to them. Let them know, like, I want to I help make one of these steps. Can you help me? God is in control. And he's already shown us how the story ends. It ends with Jesus. It ends with a risen Savior. It ends in a kingdom that never ends. And that's Daniel chapter 5. I'd love to pray for you right now. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book. And even as we approach portions of Scripture that uh, we don't even know what to do with, it's good to remember that you don't change. And that maybe um, we just need to see the writing on the wall when something's not going to work out, <laughs> when something is not headed towards you. And that we can snap out of that stupor and find that moment of, of sobriety long enough to say, I need to take a step towards the living God. God, you are in control. I, I just, transparently, God, I just pray that you help me remember that every day. Uh, help me trust you. Help me serve as a dad and a husband that knows that about you. And I pray that for every man, woman, and child in this room right now. Thank you for Daniel. Thank you for his story. Thank you for the hope that we receive by knowing the things that he told us and seeing what it means to take a stand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.